The Old Testament reading is from Psalm 10, which can be found in your church Bibles, pages 547 and 548. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In his arrogance, the wicked man hunts down the weak who are caught in the schemes of his devices. He boasts about the cravings of his heart. He blesses the greedy and reviles the Lord. In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. His ways are always prosperous. Your laws are rejected by him. He sneers at all his enemies. He says to himself, Nothing will ever shake me. He swears, no one will ever do me harm. His mouth is full of lies and threats. Trouble and evil are under his tongue. He lies in wait near the villages. From ambush, he murders the innocent. His eyes watched in secret for his victims. Like a lion in cover, he lies in wait. He lies in wait to catch the helpless. He catches the helpless and drags them off in his net. His victims are crushed. They collapse. They fall under his strength. He says to himself, God will never notice. He covers his face and never sees. Arise, Lord. Lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, he won't call me to account? But you, God, see the trouble of the afflicted. You consider their grief and take it in hand. The victims commit themselves to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked man. Call the evildoer to account for his wickedness that would not otherwise be found out. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You, Lord, hear the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them, and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed, so that mere earthly mortals will never again strike terror. This is the word of the Lord. Testament lesson comes from the book of Revelation, chapter 3, beginning with verse 7. This is found on page 1, 2, 3, 5 of your red Bibles. It'll be good for you to have this out both now and during our sermon so you can make reference to it. Revelation 3, verse 7, page 1, 2, 3, 5. So let us hear God's word together. This is the sixth of seven letters to seven churches in modern-day Turkey, Uh, this one to the church in Philadelphia. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. 
I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. Verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. I had the wonderful privilege to travel with Sam and with my wife to Egypt in February, 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 and saw, of course, pyramids and tombs, all of which were stunning. Um, Pictures don't do these things justice, but what was most stunning of all to me were the ancient temples, all up and down the Nile River. Our guide, his name was Ramez, he explained about the pharaohs of Egypt and all of this construction. He explained that these pharaohs were responsible, they believed, to lead the normal people, the commoners, into safety in the afterlife. And this explains all of the instructions, really, on the tombs. Pharaoh, this is how you lead the people into the afterlife. So all of their pyramids, their underground tombs, the mummification, none of this was meant to impress people in the normal political displays, right? It was meant to bring people safely into the afterlife. They did what they did in order to find a permanent home after death. These days, of course, uh, we almost do the opposite. It's common now when someone dies to have their bodies cremated and maybe their ashes scattered all over the place, right? Sort of like the exact opposite of mummification. But the reality is that whether we make careful plans uh, for our gravestones to be marked or we leave it to our children to scatter our ashes in this or that place, what we're trying to do while we are yet alive is make peace with the reality that we're not going to be forever, that we are going to die. We're making peace, we hope, with our lack of permanence, with the fact that the earth, whether it quakes and swallows us up in a catastrophe or whether it just slowly works on us, the earth will eventually have its way with our bodies. The Lord Jesus confronts this feeling of impermanence, unstable feelings that we have about our mortality in this letter, our feelings of weakness, our pain and our fears when he writes to the church in Philadelphia. And through this letter, he's calling us, despite all of this, to stand firm when everything seems to be collapsing. 
He's promising to stand with us when things start crumbling. And he's offering us the hope that one day we will be able to stand firm and tall, not just for a while, but forever. So we have here the call to stand firm, the promise that he'll stand firm with us, and last, the hope that we might stand firm forever. So let's take a look, shall we? First, the call to stand firm. This will be the longest part of the sermon, so don't be um, alarmed at the length here. When we're in the middle of our toughest days and months and years, we begin to feel this lack of permanence, don't we? How am I going to make it through this, we think? I have a couple of friends I've talked to recently that have described some of their darker days to me. One friend said they felt like their heart was being squeezed and they couldn't get rid of that feeling. Another friend told me it was almost the opposite. It was, it was that their fuel tank was on empty and they just couldn't get their engine running. And the reality is whatever brings on this feeling, whatever leads us into the valley of the shadow, when we're there, we feel like the Christians in Philadelphia, that our strength is gone. We feel like we can't stand up straight, that we can't walk or run. And if you haven't been there yet, you will have your turn. The followers of Jesus in Philadelphia felt this way in the midst of their witness-bearing. You see, by trusting in Jesus and then by binding together as a family, like Sam was talking to the children about, they had made themselves a tiny little minority in their city. Once again, it happens that, in, as we see in verse 9, there's a group of Jews that were there, and they've begun to spread lies about these Jesus followers. They excluded these followers of Jesus, who was, after all, the Jewish Messiah, from the synagogue there. And that meant that these Christians were cut off, actually, from the one place and the one community in which they could have some legal rights in the Roman Empire. But I think even more hurtful than the political problem that they faced was that by excluding these followers of Jesus, this particular synagogue was saying to these Christians, you're not one of us. God, in fact, is against you and curses you. Now imagine how confusing this must have been for the Greek believers in that new church. Imagine how painful it must have been for the Jewish believers in that church to be excluded and rejected from a group of God's people. And once again, though, in verse 8, as he does over and over in these letters, Jesus says what? He says, I know. I know what you've done. I know that you have little strength. I know the lies that are being spread about you. I know that in the midst of all of this sorrow and exhaustion, you've kept my word. You've not denied my name. Maybe a couple months ago, I told you about my friend and my encourager who writes me notes and emails and text messages and always stands, uh, signs them at the end, stand fast, comma, George. Well, this is exactly the kind of encouragement Jesus is giving to this church here. He's saying, church, you feel like you can't stand, but stand fast. 
you feel like you're putting your own reputation and even your life in danger by speaking about me in this city. But keep bearing witness. And he says, verse 8, that there is an open door right in front of them and that they need to go through it. Maybe this open door is an opportunity to bear witness. It has that sound to it. Maybe it simply means an open door to enter into the kingdom of God and experience its blessing. That door is wide open. I think it could be both at the same time. But the reality is, whatever it is, they have to go through the door. Entering the kingdom of God is not easy. Acts 14 says it only happens through much difficulty and tribulation. Continuing to be faithful to Jesus and even speak on his behalf is not easy. But Jesus calls the church then, as well as now, to walk through the open door. He says you're going to have to, verse 11, hold on for dear life. Verse 12, I want you to finish this race and win the victory. You see, trusting in Jesus and being faithful to Jesus will always, if you're really doing it, will always feel a little bit like dying. Whether you're giving up your selfish desires or whether you're actually laying down your life for your Lord Jesus, it's going to feel like dying. It always feels like there is a doorway to a better life and that that doorway is somewhere else, not through the difficult work of bearing witness to Jesus in private and in public with words and actions and attitudes. In central Seoul, Korea, where we used to live, there's this really awful and wonderful, at the same time, shopping district called Myeongdong, and it has these blazing lights. It's kind of like the pictures that you see of busy Asia, but maybe like a little more glamorous. This is kind of like the nice shopping district with all the department stores, and lots of makeup and cosmetic stores as well. And these blazing bright lights are everywhere. The signs are everywhere. There's always like a cute young Korean guy or girl outside of these stores saying, come in, try on a new pair of shoes, try our cosmetics, try on a better life right through this door here. And actually, sometimes you can get free cosmetics, so sometimes it's worth going through the door. The reality is that in our lives, day by day, every day, we walk past a dozen of open doors with signs over them saying things to us like, come on in for your best life now. How does sex and money and power sound to you? Come on in here and follow your heart. But the reality is that the door that we've got to walk through has a very unsexy sign on it. It says, this way for steady, humble, faithful, joyful, self-forgetful discipleship to Jesus Christ. That's your door. Outside each door that you pass in your day-to-day life, there's a friend, there's a colleague, there's maybe a celebrity on TV, maybe even a family member that's saying to you, come on in, no one will know, or you deserve this, or this won't hurt anyone. Just relax and have a little fun right through this door, please. 
But your door, Christian, has a man from Nazareth outside of it saying, I know this is hard, but come on through here and stand with me. Church, I don't know what the attractive doors that you're walking past day by day are. The ones that you are being called to pass by in order to follow your Lord Jesus and be identified with his life and with his death in order to be identified with his resurrection. But the reality is that Jesus knows those doors and he knows that it's difficult to walk past them and go to him instead. And so steady as ever, he's looking you in the face and standing with the open door and saying, right here, stay with me. Stay with me in all you think and feel and do and believe and say, stand fast with me. It haunted me a little bit as I thought about this this week. I thought, I wonder if you asked the five or six people that know me best. And you ask them, what's Andy all about? I wonder if any of them would say, you know, more than anything else, it's obvious to me that Andy's heart has been captured by the love of Jesus because it's so obvious in just the little things he does and doesn't do that time and time again, his joy is to stand with Jesus. That haunts me. What about you? Would your five or six closest friends say that about you? What a challenge for us today. But secondly, we don't have just the challenge to stand fast, to walk through the open door. We have the promise here that Jesus says he will stand with us. Philadelphia in ancient Turkey was a city that was prone to earthquakes. And they were prone, like a lot of modern cities are, also to financial disasters, those kinds of earthquakes as well. And so all of the language that begins in verse 10 here of trials and tribulations, of pillars even, and temples and cities and all their stability, this would have made sense to that church as they read Jesus' letter. They would realize Jesus is promising to stand with us, to make us able to stand even when the city around us is shaking. The promise for the Christian church at Philadelphia is if they stand for Jesus, Jesus will stand with and for them. Verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial. When the shaking really starts, we will stand together, says the Lord Jesus, because you'll stand and you'll stand with me by your side. Verse 11, he says, I'm coming soon. So whatever sorrow we experience for being faithful is not going to last forever. His coming, if you want to think about it this way, is always nearer than the moment before. And whether we die standing for Jesus or whether he comes while we're still standing, he's going to stand with us. Many of you probably don't know but the best singer-songwriter in American Christian circles at the end of the 20th century was Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins sang these wonderful words. He said, if I stand, 
let me stand on the promise that you'll pull me through. And of course, he's saying many other things. He once described, however, this intense feeling of temptation that he had when he was out on tour and away from his friends and family. And he was alone, going around singing Christian songs to churches. He felt the overwhelming, intense temptation to go and find a prostitute. And he felt himself shaking like a leaf. And in that moment, he had to say, not just, what will my family think? What would my church think? But he had to say, Lord Jesus, come and stand with me. I don't know if I can stand by myself. And he took his stand. The Spirit is calling us as the church today to stand like Rich had to do in that moment. Just like the Christians of Philadelphia were promised that Jesus would stand with them when they stood, the reality is that whatever comes, he will be standing with you as well. So you are called to stand firm. So he says, come and stand. He says, I'll stand with you. And then lastly, he gives us even more. He says, there is hope beyond all of this standing and enduring. There is the promise that you'll be able to stand, not just for a little while, but forever. Stand fast, I'll stand with you. If you stand with me, you will be able to do, Jesus says, what no one but I in the history of the human race has ever been able to do so far. And that is to stand and walk and run and climb and dance and work and laugh and play and to do it forever. So how does Jesus describe this experience to us. First, he says that we'll become, verse 12, like a pillar in the temple of God. Do you remember how David sang in Psalm 27? Lord, there's just one thing that I ask of you. Only one thing that I seek above everything else. And what is that? It's to dwell in the house of the Lord and to do it forever. To gaze upon your beauty and to be there with you in your temple. And so here Jesus says at the end of our Bibles to David and to all that hold the key of David and sing David's song of longing with him, your request is being granted. You see, through all these trials and temptations and difficulties, the difficulties of denying yourself and bearing witness to Jesus instead with your life and with your words, What Jesus is doing to each of us is he's strengthening this small desire in each of us to be with him and to gaze upon his beauty in his temple forever. And why is he putting us through this? It's to grow this desire only so that at the end of time he can grant us this desire, this one great desire of our hearts. You know, the ancient temples in Jerusalem were destroyed and the people of God, because of their failure to stand for him, were sent away from God's home. But the ache had not gone away. All of us were made to be home with our creator. Jesus says here, verse 12, one day my people will be immovable, indestructible pillars in the everlasting temple of God. Never more 
to be sent away. He says, you, church, will have my name on you. The whole creation will know that you, my church, are my home. And you won't just have, verse 7, the keys of David, sort of the entrance into the house of David, but you will be that house. You will be that temple. And the whole city, the whole new Jerusalem that comes down and renews the creation becomes a temple. And the people that live there become its pillars. And so Jesus says, all your work and all of your play and all of your rest will become, at last, temple worship for all eternity. Because your whole eternal experience will take place. Where? In the new creation. In the immediate presence of your God who made you, loved you, gave his son for you, and now has raised you from the dead, never to die again. And then finally, he says, verse 9, it will be crystal clear, not just to you, but to everybody else, that you are loved by the Savior. Isn't that something? Friends, this is the same hope that Jesus himself had to cling to and had to count on when he was standing up during his own trial and tribulation so that he could save us. He had to say and sing, if I stand for my father, even if I stand alone, out of strength, even if I die showing my father's love to this world, even if my father for the first time in all of eternity has to turn his face away from me at the cross as I bear the weight of sin, my father will stand up for me and he will stand with me and he will even raise me from the grave and give me everything that I've ever longed for. That is, he'll give me my people and he'll bring my people and my father together forever. Jesus does not say to us that there will be no earthquake, there will be no trouble and trembling, but he does say that if we stand firm, he stands firm with us. And when our bodies are returned to dust, whether we're buried or mummified or scattered around, Jesus stands up on the last day. And the trumpet blows, we will stand up too. And Jesus will be there standing beside us. And the quality and the quantity of the days of our sorrow will not be worth comparing to the glory of the days of our rejoicing that will always be ahead of us. And so friends, Jesus does all of the miracles here, doesn't he? Jesus shows all of the grace in the face of our sin here, doesn't he? Jesus comes with all of these rewards that are totally out of proportion to our small little faithfulness. But our call here is nevertheless simple and small in comparison, but it's a call nonetheless. And the call is stand with the Lord Jesus. Speak for the Lord Jesus. Stick by the Lord Jesus. And so will we? Gracious God, we pray that we would have the anointing of your Holy Spirit so that we might be able to live our lives as a testimony to all that you have done. Help us to endure the dying, whatever it looks like in our lives, so that we can also experience 
the resurrection and the life everlasting that is ours in your own resurrection. We make our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen.